The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. On April 20th, 1999, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold walked into Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado. Over the course of minutes, they would kill 12 students and a teacher and wound 24 others before taking their own lives. For the last 16 years, Sue Klebold, Dylan's mother, has lived with the grief and shame of that day. How could her child, the promising young man she had loved and raised, be responsible for such horror? And how, as his mother, had she not known something was wrong? Were there subtle signs she had missed? What, if anything, could she have done differently? Those are questions that uh, Klebold has grappled with every day since the Columbine tragedy. And in her new book, A Mother's Reckoning, Living in the Aftermath of Tragedy, she chronicles her journey as a mother trying to come to terms with the incomprehensible. Uh, The hope is, she says, the insights and understanding she's gained may help other families recognize when a child is in distress. And in addition to volunteering at local nonprofit boards for suicide prevention organizations, Sue Klebold is a member of the National Loss and Healing Council of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and is a member of the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline Consumer Survivor Subcommittee and has participated in presentations, co-chaired conferences on state and national levels. And she joins us for the hour now. Sue Klebold, welcome to the program. Thank you. What, uh, what do you hope happens with with the book this this must have been painful reviewing this i guess you were reviewing it anyway you wrote extensive journals what do you hope to gain by publishing these experiences well i think one of the things i hope to gain is to raise awareness that sometimes our kids and those we love uh, are having very disturbing thoughts and um, some cases these thoughts may be lethal they may be thoughts of suicide Very rarely would they be thoughts such as Dylan's were of suicide and homicide. But um, in looking at Dylan's death as a suicide, his reasons for being there, I think, were driven by his desire to die. The more I tried to understand how he got to be there, the more uh, evident it became to me that uh, most parents aren't really aware of the prevalence of kids that have these kinds of thoughts and of the dangerousness of those thoughts. Hmm. I want to take you back to that time. This, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's got to be painful talking about it, but it, for a good purpose, you say, what was your reaction when you first heard there were shootings at Columbine? That first moment, I was uh, extremely confused. I didn't know what was happening. When I first heard about the incident, my, it was my husband calling me at work and telling me something horrible was happening at the school, and that, uh, that people believed that Dylan might be involved uh, because kids in trench coats were shooting people. And he was pretty nearly hysterical, was just uh, you know, breathless, and, and words were tumbling out. So I then had to say, I'm coming home. And I hung up the phone, and I drove home. And my thoughts at first were, well, there's been some mistake. You know, maybe Dylan is a victim of this tragedy, or maybe this was a prank gone wrong, because he had mentioned the senior prank to me, because there wasn't anything in my mind that indicated that Dylan would be capable of intentionally harming other people. So at first, you know, I was just trying to go through what are all the possible explanations for how this could be happening, or, you know, was it really happening? Were people really being hurt or not? When did you 
when did you become aware that uh, your son was one of those kids in the trench coats doing the shooting? After I got home from work that afternoon, um, my husband had done some additional research. Dylan was on a diversion program because he had gotten in trouble and stolen something 14 months earlier. He had just been released from the diversion program early because they felt that he was doing great. And um, my husband then had been in contact with a lawyer because he thought if Dylan had done something, even a prank, he would be... um, his felony would be on his record. He might have to go to jail. So uh, we were thinking of what we were going to have to do to help Dylan, and my husband was the one who contacted an attorney who talked to the sheriff's department, and they confirmed that they believed Dylan was one of the shooters. It must have been must have been a horrible realization. What do you? How do you process that? What did? What were your thoughts? I I was just pretty. Uh, I wouldn't say hysterical, but certainly, you know, sobbing, um, just saying over and over again, that, you know, how can this be happening? How could he do this? Um, I, I just was kind of falling apart uh, and trying to put all these pieces together. And that was really the mode I was in for months, was just trying to put these pieces together so that they would make some sense to me. Because Dylan, you know, he had been at a prom with his friends and had picked out his dorm room for college just a few days before this happened. So in my mind, something had to have gone wrong, that this was somebody who was healthy and planning for his future. So it did, none of it made sense to me. Was there, was there denial on any level? Did you try to make it in your mind that Dylan wasn't involved? Well, yes, and denial is not something that we do consciously. Denial is something that occurs. Our brains do that for us. Um, Denial did happen for me, and for months I was clinging to the belief that maybe Dylan was there, but he couldn't really have killed people on purpose, or he wasn't doing these mean things that people said he did, these very sadistic sort of almost point-blank shootings. So in, in my mind, I was still believing that Dylan was there because of some kind of accident, because of something that he misunderstood or that maybe he was there because he'd been forced somehow, or someone had threatened us. I mean, these sound ridiculous, but that is what I believed. And I really clung to those beliefs up until six months after the tragedy, when we finally saw the police report and saw that the things that you know, the people were saying that he had done were true, and that it was not an impulse, as I thought it must have been. It was planned, and uh, it was... A terrible shock. I, you know, I really had to sort of start the grief process all over and tear down everything I believed in and rebuild it. Tell me about that. That I guess that six months later, the police call you in. Do they prosecutors? They they want you to see the reports. How did that happen? The everybody in the community had been waiting for the report because people wanted to see really what had happened in this in this terrible tragedy. And the, the sheriff's department had to go through thousands and thousands of pieces of evidence and interview people, and and uh, you know it was the scene was so chaotic and there was so much devastation. So this was their report to the public, and they asked us to come in, and they were going to give us their report. Um, alone, so that no one else would be there. It was just my husband and me and um, our attorneys. And um, 
just so they went through a planned presentation that they had created and showed to other audiences as well. What did you think at, at that point? I guess it's, it's very clear they take you through exactly what happened that day at Columbine. Um, all I remember is thinking for the first time of how I understood how Dylan was perceived by others because I couldn't get that that horrible, evil, sadistic concept of him into my head. And when I saw, they showed us the basement tapes that were a collection of homemade videos the, the boys had done. I remember just being shocked and sick, and I remember standing up thinking I was going to be ill and didn't know if I should run out of the room or not. So it was a horrible experience. It was just a horrible shock. And Dylan was expressing a lot of anger in the tapes. He was bad-mouthing everything. Uh, and it appeared to me that he and Eric were putting on some kind of a performance, that they were posturing for each other. So it was very staged. And I, have, I was holding in my lap questions for the, po- for the police about, you know, how do we know, uh, you know, what evidence that they have of, that he'd been brainwashed, because I was so sure that he didn't hold the responsibility for doing this willingly, and uh, I learned that I was wrong, that he was there willingly, that there was a long plan, the plan was worse, they were intending to kill everyone in the school, so I was I was shocked and shaken and um, incapacitated, really. So you, you went in, uh, what, hoping that uh, evidence would show that uh, Dylan had been brainwashed by Eric Harris, the other perpetrator? Yeah, that mm-hmm. was my thought, yeah. or, you know, even someone else, I mean, I, I didn't, I really didn't know, I mean, yeah. I just... I would hear things in the paper up until that point or read them. And they had gotten, uh, the media had gotten so many things wrong that were imprinting false information, you know, about the kids being Goths and Nazis and all these things. And I was making, I was hoping and assuming that they had gotten other things wrong as well. But I was wrong about that. So how do you... How do you reconcile that with the little boy? I'm looking at a picture here. You with uh, with Dylan. And it looks like a, in, a, in a ski lift or gondola. It's this yes, little, little boy. Was, we were at a um, an amusement park. Um, it is very very difficult to reconcile that. And um, I had years of therapy after this. And with a murder suicide, which is what I believe Dylan's participation in this event uh, amounted to. Uh, he had a couple years of suicidal thinking, and uh, he did some cutting of himself, unbeknownst to us. We knew none of this. Um, so his mind was deteriorating over a long period of time. And uh, trying to understand how he got to that place was really something that occurred over years and years. Um, when I finally saw his writings, which were even more than six months later, I believe they were closer to a year later, and I could see what he was saying and expressing, that he was in such terrible pain and he wanted to die, um, then I began to understand, at least to some degree, how he got where he got, because I had talked with a lot of people in the suicide prevention community and individuals who had survived suicide attempts who could tell me what they experienced and how their thinking broke down and how they, they lost access to 
tools of reason and self-governance. And in those ways, I began to try to create some construct that I was able to live with. Mm. Before we get into that, I want to talk about that, your your visits with, uh, you know, um, parents and other murder-suicides and... and uh, you wrote letters, I believe, to the parents of, of the victims, and that's it's just, uh, you know, um, in fact, at reading from the book, how do you say, I'm sorry, Mike, a child killed yours? I want to talk about that, but I want to talk about your experiences in the immediate aftermath. I believe you and your husband, your other son, had to leave the house, right, for a time? Right. Um, on the day of the shootings, when we weren't quite sure what was happening or whether Dylan was a victim or a perpetrator or neither, um, the police came to our house, and there were um, police from several different districts because all over the state people were coming to the area to help the sheriff's department, the Jefferson County Sheriff's Department. So some SWAT team uh, members were there, a uh, detective, and we were asked to leave our house at that day, so we weren't permitted to go in to answer the phone, or if we had to use the restroom, we had you know, two SWAT team members had to go with us, literally, and stand outside the door like prison guards. And so we spent the entire day outside. And um, from that point, when evening came, they told us that we needed to evacuate our home because a bomb squad was coming. And, of course, we didn't know why. We didn't know what that had to do with anything because we didn't really know what had happened in the school. But uh, they allowed us to go in and pack our things. They gave us five minutes each to pack and then uh, told us we had to leave. And we did. We had to uh, live in, uh, in a family member's basement for several days before we were permitted to go back in our home. And then when you went back, you had to cover all the windows, of course, the media, intense media. Were you getting, I don't know, were you getting hate mail or that kind of thing? We had people, um, the people who were protective of us and looking out for us, uh, were also helping collect our, our mail. So I didn't see much hate mail. I would occasionally come across it in uh, a newspaper, or I would turn on a radio and on a talk show. I might hear myself being called disgusting, incompetent. Um, the, real, the people who received hate mail, unfortunately, were, were members of, distant members of our family in other states. And they very often would receive death threats. Uh, and one family, one branch of the family received a couple thousand phone calls within one weekend. But we lived in um, kind of a secluded place. We had a gate, and we had an unlisted number. So for those reasons, uh, we did not receive a lot of the direct impact that some of the other family members were receiving. Mm. I want to get into the central questions that I'm sure, and well, I know from the book that's been going through your mind. And I want to frame this with readers' reaction to the New York Times review of your book. They did an interview, so they they have another separate article on just the reaction. They got 900 or so, um, you know, re- reactions, and and a lot of them went along this in in this vein, uh, you know. All, as parents, we're all just trying to do our best, and there but for the grace of God go I. So that's one strain. Then there were a few who, who were, I'll just quote this uh, from one re- uh, reader's response, willful blindness is not a defense. The Klebolds obviously did not know their son or did not want to. And, so, of, of course, these are, these are questions you've been running through in, in your mind of how could, 
How could I not have seen the signs? You know, how did I not know my son? Right. And there are a couple of things are operating, I think, for people. I certainly was one of those parents who believed that if anything were wrong with my child, I would know it, that I was a good mother, that I was an intuitive mother, that we could talk to each other about anything. I believe that about myself, and that is one of the reasons that I am willing to expose myself in writing a book like this, to say sometimes belief systems such as those are dangerous, and um, you know, please consider the fact that what you have with your child may not be uh, the relationship that they are perceiving. So that's one aspect of processing this. Another aspect of processing this is from the moment Columbine happened, both within our community and across the world, there was a lot of mythology that got developed. There was a lot of hatred that got generated and a lot of judgment. And that imprinted on a lot of people. And it imprinted because I think people don't, they find it very uncomfortable to believe that something like this could happen in a family that was attentive and loving. And it, because it makes them feel safer not to believe that. And certainly in the years before this happened to me, if I would hear of someone, even just a suicide, certainly not a criminal behavior such as killing, you know, I would have believed that somehow the family failed that individual or somehow the family you know, didn't love that person right or communicate with them properly or know them well. And when I began to research this and I met so many family members who had lost loved ones, they fell into two distinct groups. On the one hand, we had families who had a troubled individual and they tried for years and years and years to get help. The person had had treatments and hospitalizations and all kinds of therapies and they still had not been able to save that individual. And then there was another half of this group that were like me who said, I had no idea. You know, my child was a football star. My child was, you know, she was, she was the, a cheerleader or the prom queen. And, you know, she died. And so I, you know, I am, I am in that group of people who, despite our best efforts to love and communicate, we were not aware of what our children were struggling with. Uh, look in retrospect, and the, you know this is, has to be in retrospect. And I'm sure you've thought about this a lot. Uh, are there signs that you feel with, with what you know now that if you knew that then that you could have seen? I think there were signs that I might have recognized, but. Um, one of the things that made Columbine what it is, the remarkable um, sort of historic tragedy that it was, was that different people had different pieces of information, and there was, there was no um, crossing of those silos. For example, one of Dylan's friend's mothers knew that Eric had had this very threatening, you know, hostile, lethal website, but um, she did not tell the parents, either uh, Eric's parents or Dylan's parents, and Dylan was the one who pointed her son to that website. Uh, Dylan had purchased a gun. Two of his friends knew that he had purchased a gun, but no one told us that that had occurred, so we were parenting as if he didn't own a gun. We had no idea that he had a gun or would want one or were nothing. Um, so 
kinds of things occur. And um, I'm going to have you stop and re-ask me that question because I derailed myself. Uh, yes, the question is, um, looking back in retrospect, do you, do you think there were signs that Dylan was putting out that, that you could have seen? And I think there were signs. The kinds of signs we look for in a teen especially, if they are beginning to experience a mental health issue or some kind of a crisis in their own thinking, is one of the first things we look for is a change in behavior. And uh, there are additional things that we might see, change in sleep patterns, either sleeping too much or too little, change in eating patterns, being withdrawn or distant, very often being withdrawn from friends. But Dylan was never withdrawn from his friends. He stayed connected and he stayed active up until uh, the days before his death when he went to a prom with 12 of his friends were in a limo and had a great evening. So um, the thing that might have been a real clue that I feel that everyone missed, including uh, myself and his parents, was that Dylan had gotten into trouble in his junior year of high school. And that was a new behavior for Dylan. He had never been in trouble before. He had um, scratched a locker. He had broken into the school's computer system and, and gotten locker combinations. And he had gotten arrested with Eric. Um, now, at the time, I was very concerned. We talked with him. I remember me sitting and talking with him and my husband taking a walk with him to talk about what he was experiencing. We asked the diversion counselor. We expressed concern and said, I don't know what this means. And he was given uh, a questionnaire to fill out in which he was given the option of checking whether he felt suicidal or homicidal and many, many other uh, factors related to mental illness. And Dylan checked nothing on that list except the fact that he needed a job and needed money. And that is the, the point at which I truly regret that I didn't have enough knowledge to know that if someone has that dramatic a change in behavior, that it could be indicative of some kind of uh, mental deterioration. But I didn't know, and the diversion counselors didn't know. None of us knew then. We didn't put these pieces together. But that's another reason I am trying to write this book, is to alert parents to the fact that if something is different about your child, something that you haven't seen before, you have to go beyond just asking, is everything okay? Are you sure you're okay? You know, there has to be some kind of, certainly, a medical intervention, some professional expertise on somebody who is highly trained and knows how to get at that, what may be troubling that individual. Because the chances are that they will lie when asked is pretty significant. Let's take a break. Uh, when we uh, come back more with Sue Klebold, the book is A Mother's Reckoning, Living in the Aftermath of Tragedy. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio was made possible in part by our members and Devour Utah, a monthly magazine devoted to covering Utah's dining and drink scene with a spotlight on cooking, local happenings, and libations. Available at newsstands or online at devourutah.com. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and I'm talking with Sue Klebold. 
she is the mother of Dylan Klebold, uh, one of the uh, killers at Columbine High School. Uh, the, uh, this horrible event happened April 20th, 1999, and for the past 16 years, Sue Klebold has lived with the grief and shame of that day. How could her child, promising young man she had loved and raised, be responsible for such horror? And how is his mother had she not known that something was wrong? Were there subtle signs that she had missed? What, if anything, should, could she have done differently? We just uh, treated uh, those last couple of questions at the end of the last segment. And uh, we're talking about this, which, of course, unfortunately, uh, has resonations, reverberations, um, uh, just about every week or month, it seems like. I wonder, Sue Klebold, what goes your, through your mind, you know, when, when Newtown happens and Virginia Tech and Seattle Pacific University and the list goes on and on? When these things first happened, um, they were, I had a very strong emotional response. Um, it would be sort of a day of, you know, mourning and remembering. And uh, as the years have gone by and I have tried to learn and understand more about these kinds of things, I have become a little more analytic in my response. And that, you know, one of the first things I always look for is, you know, was this, was this a suicide? Did the individual intend to die by taking part in this, in this activity? And I, I always try to learn what I can about how it occurred and where it occurred and how many individuals died. And that's the kind of thing that I look at more because I have become more of a more of a student in trying to understand. I want to read just a portion of a review, and this is in the Boston Globe. The writer is Rachel Steer. Uh, it sets up this point. Uh, I'll quote her. She says, By now we're used to the story, the illicitly obtained weapons, the anodyne school settings, the kids slaughtering other kids, the sorrow, the rage, and then the non-explanations, bullying, TV, neuroscience, goth. But nearly 17 years ago, on April 20th, 1999, the phrase school shooting was not in the cultural vocabulary. And uh, Sue Klebold, you've, you've mentioned this, that, that, that I guess we've learned, fortunately, we've learned some things. Uh, I think we were teaching kids to try to recognize in each other these signs, and maybe as parents we're recognizing a few things. But I want to, I want to treat a, a question that's been going through my mind a lot, which is, as Ms. Ms. Steer here, you can see her point of view, the non-explanations, bullying, TV, neuroscience, goth. Um, is there an explanation? Can can we know the reason why, and, and therefore that gets us to prevention? Or, or are these things just going to keep happening and we, we don't really have an explanation? I don't know if we will in our lifetime live to see a time when we understand this well enough to have a handle on prevention. But I truly believe, and that's why I'm donating all my share of the profits from this book to research and to um, mental health and suicide prevention organizations, I believe that we can do much, much better and that we can prevent these. And certainly, I just heard the other day, I don't remember where I heard this statistic, but using the intervention methods we currently have with uh, observing teen behavior, having threat assessment programs in school, Dozens of school shootings have been interrupted and prevented. So, yes, things can happen. They can make a difference. The way I, I am viewing this is that if we look at uh, suicidality, because Dylan's desire to be there was his own desire for death, and because of whatever vulnerabilities he was experiencing, because of Eric's influence in his own pathologies, which were different from Dylan's, 
somehow Dylan got to that place where whatever he was experiencing moved. It moved from being in a suicidal state, involving rage, involving a plan, and it really escalated to a stage four lethal condition. One of the concerns with suicide has been the difficulty of predicting it and predicting uh, how imminent it was. But what we have learned is that we don't have to be able to make that prediction. What we need to be able to do is identify people who are at risk and who are experiencing uh, this deterioration so that we can get them help before it reaches a stage four condition. And when we look at suicide, we really have got to look at it as a medical health or a public health issue. That people who have heart disease, who have diabetes, who struggle with obesity, there are all kinds of reasons. There are no simple answers for that, just as there are no simple answers for why school shootings occur. What goes on in the mind of a perpetrator is because of his biological and genetic factors, because sometimes tendencies toward suicide and toward depression and other illnesses run in families. It is an environmental issue, and that includes the home environment as well as the school or the workplace or even the culture. It has to do with the personality of the individual, which is the filter through which they interpret their world and how they perceive what experiences, what experiences they have. And then imprinted on top of that, we have uh, triggering factors, events that occur that make it likely that, that some of these other things will be involved. And with um, suicide in particular, when people experience humiliation, such as bullying or losses, um, these can be triggering factors that interact with these other things. So yes, I believe if we look at this from a holistic medical model, we will eventually get better at affecting the systems with which we interact, the school systems, the, uh, the health system, the criminal justice system, and certainly the family systems, we're going to do a better job as time goes by in treating and in responding. And I, I think that there's no way that we can help but make this situation better. You, uh, this just a, I guess, piggyback on what you were just saying there. The last chapter in your book is called The Wrong Question. So yes. what, what's the wrong question, and then what's the right question? Well, the wrong question, I believe, is when these things happen, the first thing we always ask is why. And the question of why leads us to those examples that you just quoted. Uh, we try to find a simple answer. Why did this happen? Well, it happened because of parenting. It happened because of neurobiological issues that happened because of video games that happened because of accessibility to guns. These are all sort of dead-end answers. They are not actionable because it is never true that they happen because of one thing. The, the question I believe we should always ask is how. How did this happen? And when we ask an open-ended question like that, we, we can begin to look at the complexity of it and try to answer, how does something like this happen in all the realms that I just mentioned? It happens because of all kinds of factors, all kinds of systems, and even, even the nature of what's going on inside an individual at any one time. They don't think the same 
from one day to the next or one hour to the next. It's all moving parts. So I believe that how is the in question where we should be devoting uh, all of our attention and our resources. If you just joined us, we're talking with Sue Klebold. She's author of A Mother's Reckoning, Living in the Aftermath of Tragedy. I want to talk a little bit about perception of uh, of people who commit these uh, murder-suicides, including, unfortunately, your son Dylan. Um, one headline on Time magazine it was titled The Monsters Next Door. And there's, you know, there's your son and what you say is one of your favorite photos of, of him. Um, is, is that, I don't know, an, an accurate word to use? I think we, we, the, the danger there is you sort of dehumanize someone and then, then it gets you away from explanation or, or perhaps perception. But, but I think, you know, some people would still, would still apply that term to, to your son and others. Yes. And this is another, um, example to me of, of, oversimplifying something that is not simple. I think it makes people feel safer to believe that the kids were monsters, or that, and I hear the word evil used a lot, that they were evil. But again, I go back to our responsibility as a society. If we write off people as monsters or evil, we have lost contact with the issue I'm talking about, of how, under, of how we understand how someone who is a good and loving person turns into this cruel, sadistic, irrational, rage-filled human being. And um, I believe there are a lot of people out there who are hurting and are certainly a danger to themselves and more rarely a danger to others, but we can't write them off. We have to all work to try to help before these things occur. And uh, when I see words such as monster and evil, I, I believe we are missing the real opportunity, which is to try to understand it and do something about it. I wonder about um, the shooting in Charleston, specifically the fact that the victim's families publicly forgave Dylan Roof, the, the shooter. So I guess this this idea of forgiveness is is that something that you would advocate for? Uh, is is you know is that in terms of the community or especially the the victims' uh, families? Well, I believe that trying to understand what happened is a way of coping, um, and I think in terms of what those individuals will hold on to as they go forward in their life, people who have found what they call forgiveness. Uh, have given themselves permission to let go of anger and hatred. And forgiveness, I don't think, is a gift we give to someone else. It's a gift we give to ourselves. If we are able to let go of our judgment and our hatred of others and to try to understand and see through their eyes and experience what they experience, then I believe it makes the world uh, you know, a kinder, gentler place for everyone, for the victims themselves and for um, other people associated with the tragedy, such as family members of perpetrators who were never perceived as victims. Yeah, that's, I, I guess, I, I think that is not a widely held perception. Uh, I wonder uh, I wonder if you tell me about the letters that you wrote. You, you, you sat down and you wrote letters to the, the families of, of the victims. Uh, that must have been a 
well, I don't know. How was that? That must be very hard to do. It was horribly hard. Um, it, it, it butted right up against my denial because I was trying not to um, experience the pain that I was experiencing every day. And one of the ways I was trying to avoid pain was by not identifying those who had been killed or hurt as, you know, as real people to me. But I knew that I had to get past that, and I had to, to know who they were, to know their names, to know how they died, to read in the paper what they were, who they were, what their hobbies were, what their friends said about them. And so the act of doing that was just so terribly difficult. It took me months. I don't remember how, how long it took me to write all these letters, but it certainly was at least a month. And I just remember um, crying through the whole thing. I just kept crying and crying and crying. And I, I tried to personalize each letter based on the information that I was able to read in the papers. Um, and I was very fearful because, you know, I knew that some people, that just hearing my name or knowing that I was reaching out to them would be offensive to them. And I didn't know how they would be received. I didn't know if they would be helpful. I hoped that they would be helpful, but I just didn't know. It was just a really hard thing to do. Let's take another break. When we come back, our last segment with uh, Sue Klebold. The book is A Mother's Reckoning, Living in the Aftermath of Tragedy. More following this. Gustav Mahler got over a bad breakup in part by writing his symphony number one. He confided to a friend, the music begins where the love affair ends. Mahler's first from a concert by the Cincinnati Symphony. I'm Fred Child. Join me for the next performance today from APM. Join us tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. We're back with Sue Klebold. The book is A Mother's Reckoning, Living in the Aftermath of a Tragedy. We all, of course, have heard of a Columbine, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold uh, killed uh, 12 students and a teacher, wounded 24 others. Sue Klebold is Dylan's mother. She's had to live with the grief and shame of that day and, and answer the questions. How could her child, a promising young man she had loved and raised, be responsible for such horror? Uh, she is now an advocate for suicide prevention, and uh, the proceeds from this book are going to group, suicide prevention groups and, uh, and other groups. Um, Sue Klebold, tell me about... Uh, the range of groups that uh, that you're supporting? Well, um, I have not yet received all of my share of the, the proceeds from the book, but uh, from what I have received so far, I've been able to donate to um, Mental Health America, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, NAMI, which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness, uh, the American Association of Suicidology, the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation, and uh, the National Institute of Mental Health Gift Fund. And you can find, I guess, uh, some or all of these groups on uh, the website, which is a mothersreckoning.com, I believe. Yes. Um, 
I want to talk a little bit about a worry that I, th I think you've probably worked through in terms of bringing your story to light. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the, uh, the group No Notoriety, um, and I interviewed the, one of the founders of that group. Uh, we did a, a series on the mass shootings, uh, Tom Teves. Uh, he, he and his wife lost their son at the Aurora uh, shootings. Uh, he believes, their group believes, that uh, we should not, uh, you know, apart from the initial mention and, and if a uh, shooter is on the loose, we should not uh, be mentioning the names of, of, of the killers. Uh, no notoriety is the name of the group. Because um, some of the shooters, uh, you know, it's theorized, want the romance of, of that, even even they go down in flames. Um, and it goes back, uh, a conversation with Mr. Teeves goes back to something we were talking about uh, previously, Mr. Teeves, and you can you can completely understand his reaction. Uh, he, he has a hard time referring to the shooters as as human. He he refers to them as it, and certainly we should not even talk about them. So I guess first of all, uh, taking up on this point that we were talking about before of of dehumanizing the the shooters. I guess you you said before we that's maybe the road we shouldn't go down. Well. Um... I, I have not seen any research on whether or not mentioning a name is a dangerous thing to do. Or, um, and I can certainly understand from the personal perspective how it must be painful for the other families. My research has mostly focused around what kinds of media attention increases the likelihood that someone will copycat. And it is not necessarily the mention of the name that does that. It is the visual imagery and uh, the way it is portrayed that increases uh, copycat shootings. And um, in Dylan's and Eric's cases with Columbine, when it happened, it was a, it was a unique situation in its day for, for many reasons. Number one, it was a double murder-suicide. There were two perpetrators. It was in, a, um, in an affluent uh, suburban uh, school where people had lived under the delusion for years that their kids were safe and wouldn't do things like this. And it was the beginning of 24-hour news coverage. So uh, that inundated the public with Im images and stories about this. And we know in reporting uh, incidents such as this that by glorifying the shooters, and in any way that we do that, having them on camera in itself is dangerous, showing what they wear showing how they wear their hats, carry their weapons, showing surveillance tapes, putting their names out there with a count, a body count, of how many people were killed and injured. These are the things that are dangerous. And, uh, and certainly, um, certainly um, do, sorry that threw me. <laughs> Someone's calling me and my phone just beat. Um, so those kinds those kinds of graphic images are the things that are truly dangerous, and it does create among disenfranchised and angry people a blueprint, uh, something to follow, something to try to match or to top. So, yes, I completely agree that these things have to be done responsibly. When I wrote my book, I, I interviewed many experts, and, and some of them are the kinds of experts who will... Uh, who were helping me make sure that what I did did not increase contagion, did not try to make a, a hero out of Dylan or something, something that um, kids might aspire to be or to do. And I try, was very conscious of the risks 
in doing that, and um, and I didn't do anything in this book according to the knowledge that we have now that would be dangerous. I want to uh, do this, uh, repeat this quote uh, from uh, from Sue Klebold. Uh, she, you say, when you lose a loved one, you feel like a victim. This has happened to you. You feel helpless and confused. You progress to feeling like a survivor. And survivors reach out to each other, create support groups, band together, and share their feelings. And then, after a while, we become advocates. We just want to make a difference. We want things to be better. I want to frame this with, uh, unfortunately, these shootings keep happening, and there, there's going to be a growing list of victims of the shooters and also uh, you know, parents and family members of, of the shooters. What would you say to, to, to those, those people? Is it, the hope would be that they would follow that pattern? I think that everybody has to process their own grief and their own loss in their own way. Um, certainly, being who I am, being the personality that I have, I'm kind of an extrovert, I was a teacher, these were the things that appealed to me. It appealed to me to try to understand, to, to try to find people who had a common experience, to support each other, listen to each other, to try to raise funds uh, so that we could increase programs to help people to uh, increase the amount of research being done to understand the health uh, concerns when somebody is literally dying of a brain illness because they are contemplating their own death. So I would not say that those phases are necessarily appropriate for everyone, but they were what I experienced. And um, in the community in which I work, there are a lot of people like me who have gone through those same steps, and we are dedicated to doing what we can to try to make a difference because our loved one is gone. And in Dylan's case, many, many loved ones were gone. And by doing this kind of work, it is sort of a way for me to try to make a difference. Now, of course, uh, others will make a different choice and not go public. And that includes your, I think, your ex-husband, your your son uh, Byron, uh, the, the Harrises, for example, uh, uh, others. Um, but you've gone public, I guess, to to get to get the word out. Um, I, I guess this just illustrates many different reactions to to a horribly traumatic event like this in the life of a family. Right. And I have met um, over the years quite a few survivors of murder-suicide loss. And um, suicide loss in itself is an experience that often creates shame and guilt. But when the person you love hurts other people, the humiliation and the shame are enormous. And very often people just don't want people to know what their family member did. Uh, They don't want it to impact their professional life. They don't want even acquaintances to know. So um, being who I am and being somebody who was willing to talk about it and who journaled through the entire experience so I had enough material to go back on because very often people go through this and they don't even remember. It was so traumatic for them that they don't have a recollection of what they experienced. But because I journaled, um, that made writing a book more accessible for me. You've been doing a lot of interviews. Thank you for doing an interview with us. Uh, I wonder, so you have kind of a unique perspective here, having your finger on the pulse of reaction coming back to you. What's the reaction been? Well, I I am pleased to see that many people are reading the book. 
Um, and I understand also that there are many people who are angry and uh, still feel a strong sense of judgment and condemnation. And I don't think, it, you know, I don't think these are um, either reactions. I'm not surprised by them. I, I just felt that people might learn something from being on the inside and hearing this story another way. And I just wanted to offer that to say, you know, if there's something you can take away from this, then I'm glad. Hmm. I wonder, uh, you know, I I believe a lot of people would agree with you on, on, you know, seeing this through a mental health lens and and that this is an illness that Dylan suffered, which, which, you know, ended up in committing, you know, atrocity. Others would say, that, no, that's that's just too easy, and uh, it comes dangerously close to absolving him, the actions that he took. Uh, what would you say to, to that, to those people who have that view? Well, I can tell you, as in writing this book, that was one of my greatest challenges, because I didn't want to say, you know, this is a, a hall pass, this is something, you know, Dylan couldn't help what he did. No, um... Absolutely. I am not saying that someone who has mental health issues is dangerous, because in reality, a very small percent of people who have mental health issues are a danger to other people. Most often, they are a danger to themselves. But what I was trying to get at was the understanding of how someone's thinking deteriorates to such an extent that they are able to dehumanize and to disconnect and to act with rage without connection to conscience. And this, that was the thing that puzzled me. And I don't have a panacea. I'm not saying anywhere in the book that this is my simple explanation for what happened. I am simply putting on the table what I believe and what the experts believed, that Dylan was experiencing some kind of a mental health issue, and that that issue got worse and got worse, and then he got connected with a highly disturbed and dangerous young man. He experienced a triggering, triggering events such as bullying, um, and this happened. Now, does every kid who experiences these things become dangerous? Of course not. Dylan's and Eric's um, association with this, we have to understand this was one in millions that your child would do something like this. So that's why these simple answers and explanations don't work. It was an extremely complex event that relied heavily on the chance that all these things could be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Ending of this. And uh, let me just mention uh, once more here at the end of the conversation, uh, several groups are listed on the website, mothersreckoning.com. Um, and uh, Sue Klebold is uh, is donating proceeds from the book to uh, various suicide prevention and other organizations. Um, what I guess a, a final word? What do you come to now, having the experience of written the book? You, you've done many interviews now. Um, are are your hopes coming true that this is uh, starting a conversation or continuing conversation in the way that you would like it to do? It appears that conversations are starting that might not have otherwise occurred. So yes, I feel gratitude for that. We've been talking with Sue Klebold. The book is A Mother's Reckoning, Living in the Aftermath of Tragedy, and the website is amothersreckoning.com. Sue Klebold, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Bye now.
Thanks for listening today. A very important topic, of course. And uh, if you have a comment on this uh, interview from uh, several months ago, uh, we would still like to hear that. You can get those to us at upraccess@gmail.com. Upraccess at gmail.com. We'll get uh, any uh, emails that come in at the beginning of the program tomorrow. And uh, speaking of tomorrow, we're going to speak with the former uh, NPR producer and now author Meg Little Riley. Her uh, novel is called We Are Unprepared. In the novel, she places a young couple in harm's way, both literally and emotionally, as they face a cataclysmic storm that threatens to decimate their Vermont town and the eastern seaboard. This is her debut novel, We Are Unprepared. We'll be talking with Meg Little Riley tomorrow. Hope you'll join us then. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah today. This is Terry Guy, Development Officer at Utah Public Radio. UPR is a statewide public radio station serving the citizens of Utah since 1953. Our listeners are educated, socially conscious, and enjoy arts and culture. They are your loyal patrons. If you're looking to make a smart business decision, become a UPR sponsor. For more information, call 435-797-3141. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR, Logan. KUSK, Vernon. KUSL, Richfield. KUST, Moab. KCEU, Price. KUSU, FM, Logan. Also heard at upr.org.